hello, and welcome to this new episode of Head and Heart by Probe Ministries. I'll be your host today, Paul Rutherford. I'm a research associate with Probe. Probe is a worldview and apologetics ministry. You can check out our website at probe.org. Today, we're going to be having a conversation about theistic evolution. I'm in studio with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ray Bolin. Dr. Ray, glad you're here. I'm glad to be back. I'm glad you're back. And uh, we're going to be asking the question, is theistic evolution a viable compromise for thinking Christians? And that's a mouthful. There's a lot of words there. <laughs> and you're going to help us define some of those terms, Dr. Bowen. And mm-hmm. I look forward to this conversation. But that is the key, this idea of theistic evolution. How do we reconcile creationism and evolution? How do we do it scientifically? That's the conversation we're going to have. Is this a viable theory? Is it a good theory? That's where we're going to start today with you, Dr. Bolin. And if things go well, this will be a three-part series, Mm -hmm. and we're going to have several more episodes. So today we're going to open it up with that general question, and then we're going to do some subsequent questions after that. And listener, if you have more questions, we have lots of more resources about this at our website including a transcript to the radio show that you have already written. Dr. Ray, I think mm-hmm. there's two of those already. On and the website, yeah. Perhaps by the time this is published, there should be a third, mm-hmm. I hope. So before we get rolling, Dr. Bolin, will you give us a quick summary bio on you for our new listener who hasn't got to meet you before? Well, I've been with Pro Ministries for 48 years, Woo. and uh, my education is all in biology, bachelor's degree in zoology, a master's degree in what I would call today evolutionary biology, and a PhD in molecular and cell biology. So I've been a speaker and writer for Probe for almost all those 48 years. Thank you. And you've been a guest on this podcast many times as well. Mm-hmm. You're our resident science expert around here, yep. especially when it comes to biology and all things evolution related. And that's good because this is a, a big topic. We're going to be talking about a book that came out recently. Isn't that right, Dr. Yep. Bullen? Mm-hmm. Theistic Evolution. What's the title? Will you give us the title of the book? It's titled Theistic Evolution, A Scientific, Philosophical, and Theological Critique. Also a mouthful. Yes. (laughs) So it's titled Theistic Evolution. Mm -hmm. And as I recall, if I've seen this on your desk, this book is a tome. Yeah. The overall text of the book is about a thousand pages. That is a lot of pages. And then quite a few more hundred pages of notes and uh, references, that sort of thing. Um, It's interesting when that first came out, I think it was uh, 2019 and December 2019, um, I participated with on behalf of Discovery Institute uh, at their annual Faith and Science Conference they do at Westminster Seminary in in Pennsylvania. And they announced that they assumed that this would be a low-selling book because of its size and a wide range of topics and perspectives um, and authors. And by the time we got from December to that following April, they'd gone through three printings already. Wow, so it sold way better it than they expected. It sold far better than they thought, which is an indication of the problem theistic evolution presents. Great. Yeah, and when you say problem, the great interest that the audience mm-hmm. has. There's lots of people who want to know what yeah. educated scholars have to say about this topic. Mm-hmm. So another good reason that you're listening to this podcast right now, listener, you're saving yourself reading a thousand page book. <laughs> Dr. Boland's going to break it down for us. So I'm grateful for you in that, Dr. Boland. Uh, to be clear, if I'm not rushing to the bottom line here, Dr. Bolin, but this book that we're talking about, you're going to tell us about, Theistic Evolution, it's critical of Theistic Evolution. Absolutely. Right. This is not a pro-Theistic Evolution no. book. Just to be just to be clear wherever everyone stands mm-hmm. on the issue before we walk into this conversation. And you are as well, as I understand. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, before we get too far into that, will you help us define terms and, and tell us what Theistic Evolution is? 
I've always described it as um, the idea that God used naturalistic evolution to bring about his creation of all organisms. And for most of these last several decades, it's been referred to as theistic evolution. But from inside of that group, uh, they prefer a different term now, and they call it evolutionary creationism. This, with theistic evolution, evolution is a noun, the main portion of the term. Theism is just an adjective. With evolutionary creation, then creation at least is the noun, and evolutionary is an adjective. Um, they seem to prefer that. To me, it doesn't make any real difference. <laughs> yeah, I can see how you would get there in not being material difference. But two terms, so theistic evolution and evolutionary creationism. Right. Both referring to naturalistic explanations for the origins of right. life. Mm-hmm. Is that right? The development of all life, yeah. The development of all life. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Now, and you're not a fan, so we're going to talk about that, I think, for mm-hmm. the most of our conversation. But can you give our listener, like, your, your opening shot on why you're not a fan of well, theistic evolution? You know, my first reason is that I don't see any scientific reason to hold to theistic evolution. That's an interesting Because evolution on its own simply doesn't work. And we've been demonstrating that over the last several decades, uh, repeatedly and quite um, completely, I think. And more and more evolutionists are starting to see that the basic neo-Darwinian mechanism for evolution simply doesn't work. It doesn't answer all the questions. And there's a, a small developing group that's looking for alternative theories of evolution. So, yeah, evolution simply doesn't hold up scientifically to me. So theistic evolution makes no sense. Okay, so you're not a fan. You're critical of theistic evolution in part because it doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't, evolution has scientific problems in itself. And so making it theistic doesn't, still doesn't solve the problems. Doesn't solve anything, yeah. That is really, really interesting. My name is Paul Rutherford, and we are having a conversation today about theistic evolution and whether it is a viable theory for thinking Christians. And I'm in studio with Dr. Ray Bolin. This is a new podcast by Probe Ministries. And we're talking about this idea of theistic evolution. Dr. Bolin has already set the stage for us. He's defined that term, what it is. He's explained that he's going to be talking about a book called Theistic Evolution. And the primary editors are who on that? Steve Meyer and somebody else? Steve Meyer and J.P. Moreland and uh, Wayne Grudem. And Grudem was also on that. Yeah. Okay. There's one more, I think, but... (laughs) Okay, great. Well, if our listeners try to find that on Amazon, that'll, that'll help them find it. So thank you for that. Okay, so Dr. Bolin, so my follow-up question for that is if you think evolution has its own theoretical problems, mm-hmm. even scientifically, I mean, what, what what are those? Well, the first one that comes to mind, and it, it's there, there's a chapter in the book that deals specifically with this, and that is where does the um, biological information that runs an organism, where did that come from, uh, where did this the basic, what we call body plan arise, could that have arisen by evolution? And Stephen Meyer has a chapter on that in the book. And um, But I need to define what I mean by body plan first. Okay, yeah, go ahead. The body plan of an animal is the overall structure of the body. For instance, the butterfly and the polar bear have very different body plans. Yeah, they look real different. Yeah, they <laughs> Uh, right? Is it that simple? Yes, right. All right, I'm following you. I the, can do that. The uh, the butterfly has a skeleton on the outside, known as an exoskeleton. Uh-huh. 
polar bears and other mammals have an endoskeleton. That skeleton is on the inside. Mm -hmm. And so all the other major organs and organ systems and are all arranged quite differently. Butterflies have wings. Polar bears don't. If you see polar bears with wings, yeah. then something's wrong. <laughs> I'm running away <laughs> if I see a polar it's bear right. with wings. Um, All right, a body plan. Okay, I got you. So each of these animals need to form along very different routes or pathways uh, as it develops from a, a single fertilized egg. But we've done studies in developmental biology, that is how uh, studying embryology, okay? Uh, of how organisms develop, and they show changes in biological form require attention to timing, especially those steps involving the developing of the body plan. Also, they use these phrases in the literature, careful choreography. Careful. How does evolution get careful choreography? Sounds like agencies involved there. Yeah. Like intelligence, um, you might say. So in the expression of genetic information, not just when, but how much, how long-lived... And everything has to be in a proper sequence. Um, and these are real problems for these types of things to evolve. Major evolutionary change requires changes in the body plan, um, which is formed very early in embryological development. So the body plan forms first, basically. And so mutations, if we're going to change the body plan, mutations have to occur early in embryological development. Uh, mutations that, that occur late, well, that's not going to change the body plans. It might get, it change some color and uh, slight changes in the size and shape of a beak or of a bird or something like that. But, but by that point, the, the body plan's already Body plan's already in place. Yeah, I'm with you. But numerous studies have shown that early mutations are inevitably lethal. They kill a developing organism. Early simply, mutations are lethal. Yeah. Inevitably. They don't, they don't survive. Yikes. Um, and late changes as I said, well, they don't affect the body plan. Um, as Stephen Meyer put it, uh, the kind of mutations we need, early ones, he means, we don't get. The kind we get, we don't need. So we can, we can find examples of mutations that, play, that, uh, that take place in embryological development that happen late. But those aren't going to change the body plan. So we can get we we've seen those kinds of mutations, but the kind of mutations that are needed, the ones that occur early, you don't find those because they kill the organism. So how do, how does evolution change a body plan if early mutations are always lethal? Big problem. Big big problem for the theory. <laughs> big problem for the theory. It it sounds like there would be then no good examples of. Of no, we, we don't have any examples of how organisms how they change. A body plan could change biologically, and the way you describe the way organisms develop embryologically, it sounds like if the body plan is developed first, mm -hmm. and that has to be right mm -hmm. in order for the organism to survive, it's almost like you have to know what you're doing. <laughs> it's like somebody it's had to like know what he was doing. There's a plan in place. Exactly. I think that's where I, that's where I was going. And do plans come about by chance? Well, usually not. Usually not. Plans get destroyed by chance. Yeah, no kidding. You have to know where you're going at the end from the beginning and design it accordingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are some serious scientific problems for evolutionary theory. Yeah. Yeah, so I can see why you'd be critical. Is there is there something else? Yeah, there's another one. Yeah. Um, you know, within neo-Darwinism, um, it's mutations guided through and that are selected by natural selection. 
And so those two parts, mutations, natural selection, are both necessary for the Darwinian framework. Darwin, by the way, didn't know anything about genes or mutations or anything like that. Um, but um, Dr. Wells, Jonathan Wells, has a chapter basically titled, um, well, he just has a chapter on why DNA mutations are insufficient. And he begins the chapter by making sure we understand what's meant by what he calls the central dogma. It's called that by the evolutionary community. The central dogma simply is, so it goes something like this. DNA makes RNA, makes protein, makes us. It's been a fairly common phrase in evolutionary studies for decades. And it was thought that all of the instruction for building organisms was in the sequence code of DNA. But DNA never leaves the nucleus. DNA makes RNA. The RNA leaves the nucleus in the cytoplasm of the cell. And there it's found by what we simply call molecular machines. Even evolutionary scientists refer to these as molecular machines. <laughs> they used machine language. <laughs> and uh, that's what makes the, takes the RNA and it translates the RNA code into protein code. Proteins are long strings of amino acids, and it's that sequence in, the, in RNA that determines the sequence of the amino acids. So that's, that's an actually pretty tricky process, because DNA and RNA are basically the same language, you could say. But protein's completely different. And that's why when we say DNA goes to RNA, DNA transcribes into RNA, but RNA is translated into protein. Those are language terms. Interesting. We don't use them because they're they're convenient. They actually describe what takes place. Mm. You could say that RNA is a dialect <laughs> of DNA. Okay, and so um, if that's how things work, and then you get the proteins, and the proteins are what determine uh, the composition of the cell, what the cell does, and then those get accumulated into tissues, tissues into organs, organs into organ systems, and then the organism. Okay. And so the central dogma was about that DNA makes RNA, makes protein, therefore makes us. Mm -hmm. Okay. But over the last few decades, Wells documents that this analogy has fallen apart. Okay. Um, initially, a stretch of DNA that coded for a single protein was called a gene. So a gene codes for one protein, also basically part of the central dogma. One gene, one protein. We now know that RNA transcribed from a gene can be broken apart and split up and recombined in different ways so that the eventual RNA sequence no longer matches the DNA sequence. And this is within the last 20, 30 years or so that we've discovered this. About 95% of human genes code for more than one protein. Most of our RNAs... They come from DNA for, for making proteins that they, they get recombined in different ways. So you can get, uh, we've had, we have examples of some genes that can form and some organisms can form hundreds of different proteins. Technically one gene, but it gets rearranged in different ways. We also have examples of proteins, genes overlap on the DNA chromosome. Okay. Which means the end of one gene also includes the start of another gene. Hmm. And how that happened by chance alone is, is basically impossible to account for. 
Hmm. Let's get back to uh, the central dogma here. Uh, As I mentioned, most genes, especially human genes, are able to be RNA can be reconstructed and form more than more than one protein. We also know that proteins can also be modified with sequences of sugar molecules that are specific to a particular tissue. What controls the splicing and the addition of sugar molecules is not fully known. We don't really know how that works. But for various reasons, it's not DNA alone that determines these variations on a central theme. So that idea of the central dogma, DNA makes RNA, makes protein, makes us, simply Mm -hmm. isn't true. As I said, many proteins have these extra, what we call carbohydrate chains, the sugar chains that are attached to it. Um, And it happens in a certain organelle in each cell. And what controls it? How does how does this organelle in the cell know what to do, hmm. or what kinds of sugar molecules, and where do they get put? Um, it seems quite orchestrated. The cell does not make mistakes with that. It always gets done the same way for the same protein with the same sugar molecules in all in all the same arrangement. But how is that? How that's controlled? We don't know. Hmm. Okay, so. I hear you saying in this second illustration of your scientific criticism of theistic evolution is that if the central dogma is that DNA makes RNA, which makes proteins, which make us, Mm -hmm. if if that's really how evolutionary development progressed, uh, what we find when we study how all these pieces work together is that that's, it's, it's far more complicated than Mm -hmm. that. And that there's no, good naturalistic explanation for how those processes can coordinate, how they can work together, how they work in sequencing. We, we, there, are, there are not good evolutionary no. naturalistic answers for how those coordinate with each other. That's what I, is that, that's mm-hmm. what I hear you saying. Is that right? And I remember I was in, in grad school at the University of Texas at Dallas. Um, we had a, a seminar student who was presenting a, a published paper and was talking about this very sort of thing. It was just just being discovered at that point in the in the late eighties, and um, there was a professor who studied basically an organelle called the mitochondria, where the energy for the cell is is packaged. It's called the powerhouse of the cell, <laughs> and they were going over some of this. And I asked him during the conversation time, during the discussion time, I said, "Now I can understand how natural selection could keep this in place." This, the splicing of the genes and putting things back together in different ways. But how did it evolve in the first place? And he kind of sat there, looked at me and said, I have no idea. <laughs> well, an honest answer. Yes, that's the problem. <laughs> that's the problem. Thank you for sharing mm-hmm. these things. You know, we're, we're almost at time and, and I, and I want to I want to ask a really important question yeah. because I hear you saying, you have scientific criticisms of theistic evolution that, mm-hmm. that make it not a viable theory, scientifically speaking. Right. Even if you're not a Christian, that's right. not the point. You're, you're making all these claims based on scientific method, scientific mm-hmm. criticisms, which is fine. So if, we're, if, if our listener here is a thinking Christian and they're hearing you say, hey, buying into theistic evolution actually doesn't solve your problem mm-hmm. of trying to figure out where life developed and where life came from, from a naturalistic standpoint— what, I mean, what's 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 at stake here? What's the cost? Uh, as I understand in the book, Doug Axe mm-hmm. has some things to say about that, that there's yeah. a cost to adopting theistic evolution if you're a Christian. What what are those? Well, the cost he was talking about um, is, first of all, he quotes from Book of Job, chapter 39, verses 26, 27. 
where God says to Job, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? Then there were lots of other <laughs> things that, that the Lord mentioned there, but eventually mm-hmm, Job was appropriately mm-hmm. humbled. Okay. As he responded later, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now, when God is saying these things to Job, um, is it by your understanding that the hawk soars? Well, no. Um, God has designed something here that allows the hawk to soar, and the fact that the eagle makes its nests on high is also something that was programmed into their DNA at the start. Um, now, if you don't agree with what, how Job responded, as Heck says, uh, then you should try to make an eagle. Oh, he said, well, well, we can create flying toys with flapping wings and all, but they don't even come close to an eagle or a hawk. These toys must be made on an assembly line with parts being added by humans as, as, um, until the quote-unquote eagle is complete. Um, but with only yolk and white of an egg as its nutrition, true eagles are formed within the egg by a seamless automated process. No human interference needed. Um, and if a part breaks on your flying toy, uh, it must be replaced by a human. Eagles' bodies can mostly heal themselves, and true eagles reproduce on their own. Mm-hmm. No flying toy will ever reproduce itself. <laughs> okay? Nope. Um, so Job's response was correct. He didn't respond, however, saying, actually, God, hawks and eagles could have appeared by accident over millions of years. <laughs> That's absurd and funny. Doug states, I see no way around the fact that the resting awe we're meant to have for the maker of the majestic eagle is lost the moment we accept that accidental physical process could have done the making instead. So So that's the loss of the sense of wonder. Sense of awe and wonder at what God has done. An appropriate response to the maker of Mm -hmm. us. That's what God was after in those those chapters of Job where he just repeats all these amazing things about natural world. So it sounds like there's a lot at stake. Yeah, I think so. Adopting a theistic evolutionary view can tend towards a, I'll just call it pride, mm-hmm. that we can say, you know what, God, we really understand how this works, yeah. and we think we know it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Pride is never commendable. No. <laughs> and in scripture, it is what often is it? deplored. Yes. <laughs> and warned against, probably more than anything else. So what I hear you saying is there's a significant cost at stake, mm-hmm, Dr. Absolutely. when it comes to our listener and whether or not they would adopt theistic evolution. Scientific issues aside, going this route has a spiritual cost. There's a spiritual yeah. dynamic. There's a spiritual mm-hmm. component to it. I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, Dr. Bullen, this has been a really fun conversation about theistic evolution and you sharing mm-hmm. your issues and your criticisms of it. When we ask the question, is this a viable compromise for a thinking Christian? Sounds like the resounding answer is no. No, and absolutely. You, not. you already cited some mm-hmm. spiritual and some scientific issues mm-hmm. and, and justifications for that. In the next episode, we're going to talk more about that. I'm going to af- ask some more questions because you have more scientific mm-hmm. issues that we can talk through and we'll talk about. And uh, and then hopefully in episode three, we'll talk about the philosophy side of it as well. So, listener, I hope this has helped you think through this in a in a biblical and a scientific perspective, which is what Dr. Bowen is so adept at doing. If you have more questions about this issue, you can go to our website, probe.org. There are other articles on the website. Dr. Bowen, you have a radio show 
or two mm-hmm. on this already. Yep. Those also accessible on the website. And if you have not, please do subscribe to this podcast on whatever platform you're using. Uh, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Dr. Boland, thank you for being, yep. being in the studio with me. And um, listener, we will see you next time. Okay.